Our scripture reading for today is Romans chapter 11, verses 2 to 6. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, Romans 11, 2 to 6. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Good morning. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Our Father, we come to you today with reverence and with thankfulness for who you are. We come to worship, and let us remember, Lord, that when we worship, we are declaring your worthship. And so we can only worship you by grace because we can't even fathom your worth. And so we thank you for the time that we have here and the, the time to study your word and to see what you would say to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would plant seeds deeply in our heart, that it would bear fruit, that would glorify Christ in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be continuing in our study of Genesis today. Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. I was going to try to knock it all out last week, but yeah, forget about that. There is, there's at least two sermons worth of, uh, of material here, I figured, so, and I didn't, I didn't even get to the end. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 26 to 36 today of Genesis chapter 42. There's a, uh, there's a board game out there called Worst Case Scenario, and in fact, I'm actually pretty sure that a couple of you may have played that game with us a few years ago. It's been a few years, but uh, I think we've had some people play it with Christina and me. The game is kind of comical because some of the scenarios are just so far out there, so outlandish. Um, some are more realistic than others. For example, one question is, how do you avoid catching a cold? And the game offers multiple choice answers, and there are three uh, possible answers. A, do you sit in a sauna two or more times per week? It's a good excuse to sit in a sauna, but... Uh, B, use a dehumidifier in your house to reduce germs, or C, do you wash your hands every time you touch something? Now, obviously, there are people who, um, you know, for one reason or another, at some point in their lives, do start practicing that third option, uh, but the second option has to be the correct answer, right, I, I would think. Uh, I mean, it, it, the first one is a good, like I said, a good excuse to, to get in a sauna a couple times a week, but a sauna is really kind of a breeding ground for germs and whatnot, and that's coming from somebody who has a history of being a little bit of a germaphobe. Uh, another question, this one's a little bit less realistic, is how do you get across a piranha-infested river? Now, I, I won't go through the answers, but my answer would be you build a bridge or you just turn around and find a different way. But the idea of the game is to be prepared for the worst thing that could possibly happen. In other words, it's a game of kind of playful preparation for Murphy's Law. And if you're not familiar with Murphy's Law, Murphy's Law is basically the, the thing where, you know, we assume that uh, the least likely and most disastrous things that could possibly happen will happen. And we've all seen that actually happen on rare occasions, haven't we? I mean, the worst possible thing that could happen can happen. We've all faced times when maybe we felt like the odds were just insurmountably stacked against us, which I should add in the moment isn't very funny, especially if you're crossing a piranha-infested river. But the Bible gives us this assurance. 
The Bible gives us the assurance that if we belong to God through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord, then God is for us. God is for us, God dwells within us, and God is for us. He's with us, in us, for us. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? I've referenced the promises of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Um, I couldn't even tell you how many times throughout this sermon series. But listen very closely to how Paul connects that promise to the idea that nobody and no thing can stand against us if God is for us. Romans, uh, Romans 8.28-31, to, to he says this, he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And then you get to verse 31. And here's, here's the, the, the conclusion of that. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? Now, we've probably all heard that. You've probably heard it so many times that you could recite it in your sleep. We know it intellectually, thoroughly. But nevertheless, it's something that for all of us, our hearts struggle to fully believe on a daily basis, isn't it? As we continue in our study of Genesis today, we're going to see Jacob struggling to believe that God is for him. After all the years that God has been faithful to Jacob, so many years, decades, Jacob still struggles to believe it with his heart. He'll be confronted with what feels like a worst case scenario with, with, with Murphy's Law, if you will. It seems like an, a no-win situation where he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. But in doing so, in, in coming to this point, Jacob is going to remind us that if God is for us, there will be certain things that are against us. The devil is against us, the world, and the flesh. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, to these are the three things that are constantly against God's children. The devil, the flesh, and the world. And yet, those three things are ultimately meaningless, harmless, irrelevant. Because if God is for us, and if God can overcome all things, He can, then there's no situation that can't be overcome by the grace of God. Now we've seen Jacob's son Joseph be sold off to slavery in Egypt by his brothers, only for him to rise to prominence, for God to bless him and to prosper him in Egypt under the authority of Pharaoh. And by the grace and the gifting of God, Joseph, if you remember, he rightly interpreted two of Pharaoh's dreams. They actually had the same meaning. And that is that there would be a severe famine in the land for seven years, followed by seven years, uh, seven years of prosperity, uh, uh, followed by seven years of famine. So Joseph advised Pharaoh to spend the seven years of prosperity preparing for the seven years of famine. And as a result, when all the world fell into a severe famine, Egypt had more than enough grain for everyone, and thus everyone had to come to Egypt in order to survive, in order to buy grain. And so when Jacob gets word of this, the fact that there's all this grain down in Egypt, he instructs his sons to quit just staring at each other and to get down to Egypt to buy some grain. And when they go down there, they're confronted by Joseph. Joseph sees them. And he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so he interrogates them and he jails them. And we saw that God used this situation to stir up an acute awareness within each one of the brothers of their utter sinfulness, their guilt before God. It's the first time that they've acknowledged any sense of guilt in their entire lives as far as we know. And as the brothers confessed their guilt in the jail cell, you'll remember that Joseph was nearby listening to them. They didn't realize that he was their brother and that he understood what they were saying because they're speaking in a Hebrew dialect, thinking that nobody could understand them. But when he hears them and understands them, he did two things in response. 
First, he did something secretly, if you remember. Secretly, he turned from them and he wept. He wept. Why do you think he wept? I think there are probably a lot of reasons. There are some obviously hurt feelings that are being healed here, and tears are often a sign of of that happening. But I think the reason that the healing is taking place is because Joseph is able to see and, and to hear with his ears that the grace of God is suddenly working in the lives of his brothers. He saw what God was doing to their hearts and how God was breaking them and humbling them in order that he could change them. And so then Jacob did something openly. That was, that was done in private. Now he does something openly. He, he, he binds Simeon, ties him up right in front of his brothers, right? So, so they can see it. So they can see the, the fear and the anguish in Simeon's eyes. And they were, sold, they were uh, told to go back to Canaan to get their brother Benjamin. And as far as the brothers were concerned, this Egyptian ruler, man, he was just harsh. He was cruel. They had no idea that the things that he was doing, he was actually doing out of love. Isn't that how it so often feels when God disciplines us? It might seem cruel at the time. It might seem harsh at the time. But it's out of love. Has it ever felt like God has been harsh with you? It has for me. I've felt that way before. And yet in every single circumstance, I can look back and see His discipline and how it was being done out of love and compassion. Just like His Word says. Just like He tells us in Hebrews. So Joseph uh, bound Simeon and sent the others home to retrieve their brother Benjamin. We saw in verse 25 that Joseph instructed that their bags be filled with grain and that all of their money be returned to them. And then he provided them with enough provisions for the journey home. It was a great act of grace on his part. It shows us that he had forgiven his brothers before they even asked for it. He had forgiven them. And this was kind of a, a shadow of the grace which God provides for our journey ahead, for every need that we have between now and glory. So this is where the story left off. Let's continue looking at verses 26 to 34 of chapter 42. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack and to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men, we are not spies, we are twelve brothers, sons of our father, one is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men, leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land." So the brothers load up their donkeys for this long trip back to Canaan. It wouldn't be a long trip today. You could do it in a day, no problem. But back then, uh, it would have taken a while. This would have been a journey of about 250 miles. 250 miles. So if you consider that you know, maybe on a good day where you're doing a lot of downhill walking, maybe you'll go as far as 12 or 13 miles. Um, but that means that this would be about a three-week journey. About a three-week journey back to Canaan. But Joseph made sure that they had everything that they were going to need in order to get home and to deliver grain to their respective families and to Jacob. And as they're on the road to Canaan, one of the, donkey, one of the brothers opens his bags to feed his donkey, only to discover that he had, uh, he had the, the money that he had brought to pay for the grain had been returned to him. This is just one brother. And look at what the response of every single one of the brothers was in verse 28. It says, Their hearts sank, 
And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? And at this point, this is where, if we could insert some, some music, if we, were, if we were making a movie of it, at this point, this is where I would personally insert Handel's Messiah Chorus, uh, because this is the first time since we've met the brothers, this is the first time that they've even mentioned the Word of God, the name of God. They, they haven't said a word about Him since we were introduced to them back in chapter 37. But I want you to see how this progression is. Because this is how it works. First thing is, they acknowledge their guilt. That's what happened in the jail cell. They acknowledged their guilt. They realized that they were sinners. They realized that they were only de- uh, deserving, only worthy of wrath. And once they acknowledge their guilt, once they come to term with the fact that they are guilty, then they fear God. They fear God rightly. And that's the way it works. That's the way it always works. You realize that you are a sinner, and that's when you start to fear God. You don't fear God before that. Now, it's highly, highly unlikely that this is actually the first time that they have said the name of God. They, they've, they've undoubtedly, I would say, uh, uttered the, the name Elohim. They spent years living under Jacob's roof, and surely they, they heard the name of God, and they've undoubtedly you know, spoken or joined with Jacob in prayers to God, to Elohim. But up until this point, here's the thing. It had been a meaningless word to them. The name or the word God meant nothing to them. It, it meant the same, you know, it had the same moral equivalence of shoe or destiny, right? Because up until this point, none of these brothers had any idea who God really was. He, he just wasn't real to them. They had never feared him with holy reverence, with the type of fear and trembling that one experiences when they first come face to face with the reality that God is utterly and completely and unswervingly holy, and that we're not. So you come face to face with the reality of his holiness and his existence. And suddenly, God is a real threat to them, and they see it. And of course, we know that one of the Ten Commandments is that you not take the Lord's name in vain, right? But what does that even mean, to take the Lord's name in vain? What it means is that there should never be anything casual about the way that we use His name. It shouldn't just roll off our tongues the same way that a word like Uh, microphone rolls off our tongues, right? It should never just be something that we speak without giving it a second thought. To use His name casually is to disrespect Him. Because Because God is holy. And because God is holy, His very name is sacred and holy. And when you consider this, consider how depraved, consider how disgusting, consider how vile it is when people use his name in place of a curse word. I can't imagine anything worse than that. A few years ago, the man who was president of the United States at the time ended a speech in which he endorsed Planned Parenthood by saying, God bless Planned Parenthood. That is the kind of casual flippant, wicked use of God's name that the command to not take the Lord's name in vain applies to. Because the God whose very name is holy would never, never endorse an organization that carries out the systematic genocide of innocent and defenseless people. So here's a question. How do you know when you're coming to understand, when you're coming to terms with who God is? How do you know when you're coming to understand and revere and worship the God of the Bible and not just some imaginary or fictitious God who blesses the murder of 60 million children? I mean, that's, that is a God who's just a figment of somebody's imagination. So how do you know that you're, you're coming to understand the true God of the Bible? when you become 
aware of your sin, first of all. You become aware of it. You know that it's there. And it's like a pebble in your shoe, and you can't get your shoe off. So you become aware of your sin, first of all. Secondly, you're troubled by it. You're troubled by it. It's not just something that you're comfortable with. It's like a pebble in your shoe that you can't get out. If you're not growing both in your awareness of sin and in your discomfort with sin, your hatred for your sin, and thus your eagerness to to get the pebble out of your shoe, your eagerness to repent and to confess of your sin, If, if you don't have these things, what could possibly be the basis that a person would rightly believe that God is working in them? Or that He's for them? Now, I know that people often claim God's favor or God's uh, privilege or God's blessing all the time, and we see them doing it wrongly on, on TV, for example, on, on you know, t- uh, TBN. You can find all kinds of people claiming that they have God's favor when clearly they are believing in a God that is not the God of the Bible. You know, someone uh, amongst us can do the same thing, though. Maybe not the way that they do on TV, but in a different way. Maybe somebody gets a job promotion, or or you get a pay raise, and and you think that God is this is a necess- this is necessarily a sign that God is blessing you and that God is for you, and maybe He is. That that's entirely possible. Or, depending on the condition of your heart, maybe. You got that job promotion or that pay raise because God is handing you over to your sin. Theoretically, it it could be either one. The difference is the heart. Or, Or someone may claim that God is blessing them when they decide to be honest about who they are and what they desire. And so what they end up doing is they end up pursuing this sinful lifestyle that gives them a sense of peace about themselves, that gives them a sense of clarity about who they are and who God designed them to be. They feel happy, and they interpret that happiness as God's blessing. Friends, that is not evidence that God is for someone. Rather, this is clear evidence that He's handed that person over to their sin, and that that person needs to go back to square one, repent, and believe in Christ. Turn from sin. Confess sin. He'll wash you white as snow. But if you're living in a sinful lifestyle that you're not turning away from, you have reason to be concerned. Friends, the only real basis for believing that God is working in you is if you are bearing fruit of that work and of His blessing. And that must inevitably include a growing awareness of sin a growing hatred of sin, and a growing eagerness to confess of and repent of sin. Notice in the story that the brothers acknowledge their guilt for the first time in their lives, only a few verses back, and now they've had their first awareness of God's existence and of the fact that He is lovingly disciplining them. He don't, they, don't, they don't see it as lovingly. They just see it as some type of punishment. We see it as the readers, as his loving discipline. But now he's real to them in a way that he he just never has been before. And the result is that they are smitten with fear and trembling. And that's only one brother who found it in his bag. Isn't it strange that their response would be to say, what is this that God has done to us? What has he done unto them? He's been gracious. The last thing that they would have expected. He was gracious unto them. So incredibly gracious. And that terrifies them. I I know, most people think that what they're afraid of here is that they're going to be accused of stealing. But the fact is, this issue never comes up again. Joseph never brings it up. They never bring it up with him. Uh, in fact, in chapter 44, Joseph will hide a cup in Benjamin's bag, and then he sends soldiers after them, uh, knowing that he's got the cup. You know, if Joseph wants them to be afraid of you know, being accused of stealing, uh, that's what he would have done here. But no, the money is never mentioned again. It's the grace of God unto 
the brothers through Joseph. And it's the grace of God being demonstrated to them that freaks them out because they know they're guilty. How could God do this if we're guilty? How could God be gracious unto us if we're guilty? See, grace is just its such a, a foreign concept to the unsaved person. It doesn't make any sense. It seems completely illogical. But it is grace that grants a person true godly fear. A fear that recognizes God's presence. A fear that recognizes His awareness of and His hatred of our sin. But it's grace. It's grace because God uses this to cause them to fear. And God draws near to those who rightly fear Him. And for these brothers, it's the first time any of them have rightly feared God. Think of the hymn, Amazing Grace. We've all heard it. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Like, right? We sing the second verse though. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to... to fear. To fear. Grace causes our hearts to fear. And not just to have some kind of blind, aimless fear, but to have a godly fear. A fear that God is holy. A fear that we are not holy. And a fear that because of the difference, we're in harm's way. And that only leaves us with one choice. One option. And that is to throw ourselves entirely upon the grace and the mercy of God. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace, what? My fears relieved. There's nothing that isn't amazing about God's grace. And, and here's where Jacob comes back into the story. The brothers get home. They tell Jacob about what happened while they were down in Egypt. Jacob gets kind of the, the, the play-by-play, the highlight reel, if you will, of how they were accused by this mean and cruel Lord in Egypt of being spies and how they were supposed to bring Benjamin back with them. And for the most part, this is a, a pretty accurate account of what happened, but it's missing the most significant details of the whole story. It's a start, but it's lacking a little bit. First of all, uh, it it misses the fact that they were imprisoned for three days. They don't tell Jacob that they were uh, in this jail cell for three days. Secondly, uh, it doesn't say any, they don't report anything about the guilt that they confessed to about what they did to their brother so many years ago, right? Which, Which Joseph, unbeknownst to them, understood as he listened to their conversation in the jail cell. But there's a third detail. There's a third thing that they left out of their account, and that is the fact that their money had been returned to one of them. And this terrified them so much, they they just left it out of the report. I have to guess that that, that's why they don't say a word about it. But the report is mostly accurate. And Jacob apparently doesn't have a whole lot to say yet, but but he's going to. Let's look look at verses 35 and 36. It says, Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold... Every man's bundle of money, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. The brothers failed to tell their father about how one of the brothers found his money in, in his sack as he was getting, uh, trying, to, trying to feed his donkey. But then the men finish giving the report and they're going to unpack their bags and settle in for a couple weeks while they um, you know, get stuff ready to go back down. And as they open their bags, they discover that it wasn't just one of them to whom the money had been returned. It was all of them. All of them had all of their money returned to them. If they were freaking out before, what do you think is going through their minds now? They are freaking out. And now Jacob has something to say because he's freaking out too. I think he knows what type of people his sons 
have been up until this point in the story. He knows that his sons are evil. He knows that his sons have been treacherous. He knows that his sons have been completely wicked all of their lives. And so his assumption seems to be that this is some kind of setup to, to, to take all of his children away from him. He recounts that, as far as he knows, Joseph is no more. He thinks he's dead. He figures that, okay, you guys left Simeon down there. He's dead too. He's as good as dead. And he believes that Benjamin is going to be killed as well. So in Benjamin's mind, this is Murphy's Law. This is a worst case scenario. The worst thing that could possibly happen is starting to unfold in his mind. So he cries out, all these things are against me. You know, part of the reason that I appreciate Jacob is because his faith wavers so easily from one moment to the next. He has faith. God is with him. God is for him. God has prospered him. God has blessed him. And yet, when something bad happens, he forgets it all. He's forgotten that God so long ago made all these promises that he would bless him and prosper him, that he would be for Jacob. Jacob has a severe case of what I would call spiritual amnesia. And the reason that I appreciate this, the reason I I, I love this characteristic about him in a way, is because there are times when I think we all do the same thing. I know I do. You know, something happens and in a moment of panic, my mind knows that God is sovereign, right? My mind knows that God is in control. My mind knows, yes, if God is for me, then nothing can ultimately be against me. My mind knows these things, but my heart has this problem with spiritual amnesia. And the wonderful truth is that for a child of God, God is always with us. And He is always for us. In fact, He is more for us than we are for ourselves. If you are a child of God, He is more for you than you are for yourself. And if God is for us, what threat, what danger could anything pose to us? Do you think we're a threat to ourselves? you think we're a danger to ourselves? <laughs> Absolutely. Every single one of us is a danger to ourselves. Every single one of us. If it wasn't for the grace of God, the flesh would get the best of us until there is no, nothing left. There would be no leftovers for God. The flesh would take it all. Friends, we, we sing the song, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We are more than just prone to wander in the flesh. If it were not for God's restraining grace, not only would we be quick to wander, not prone to wander, but we would be quick to wander, but we would also wander as far away from God as we possibly could. If it were not for God's restraining grace. Yes, Jacob, these things might be against you. Because the world is against you. The devil is against you. Your own flesh is even against you. But Jacob, God is for you. And there is nothing that God cannot overcome. And the same applies to us. The problem is that although we see, we only see dimly. There's this passage from the book of Mark in which a blind man gets healed, but he gets healed in two phases. And, and this leads to some, for some, some people to have some really bad theology, but it raises questions. Why, why was this one blind man uh, healed in, in two stages, whereas Jesus has shown before that he does have the power to heal somebody immediately just by the power of his words? So why was this one man in the book of Mark, why was he healed in two stages? Well, if you back up in the chapter, you see that Jesus has, has fed the, the 5,000, and as they're in their boats on the way back, they start thinking, oh no, we have no bread. And Jesus turns to them and he's like, do you have ears and not hear? As if to say, you know, kind of, what's wrong with you guys? Why, why aren't you catching on to this? I just fed 5,000 people, and you're saying, we have no bread? 
spiritual amnesia. You see that? It's, it's spiritual amnesia. See, we see, but we see so dimly. We, but we do live with the hope that one day we will see clearly. We will see clearly. Until then, we are prone to wander. We're prone to feel like things are against us. There will be moments where we feel like everything is against us. And sometimes we may feel like everything that could possibly go wrong is going wrong. But in times like that, here's my encouragement to you. Here's my my bit of advice to you. Back up. Take a breath. And remember that God is with you. God dwells within you. And God is for you. And in light of these truths, somehow... Some way, God is causing everything to work for your good. We just see dimly in this world. If you're ever driving in fog, sometimes you can't see more than 10 yards in front of you. Sometimes it's closer than that. But there's something there, and that's what happens in moments like that. It's there. You just can't see it. Usually, we see in retrospect. Usually, we look back in the rearview mirror of life and we say, that's what God was doing there. I I see how God used that to humble me. I see how God used that to grow me in holiness. James Montgomery Boyce notes that if Jacob were alive in our world today, maybe he would have twisted the words of the famous children's song and been singing, no one loves me, this I know, my misfortunes tell me so. Ever feel like that? What a predicament he's in, right? I mean, think about this from, from his perspective. What are his options here? One option is he could approve of Benjamin going down to Egypt with them, and thus uh, they, they would be allowed to have this grain and survive, but he, he's, in his mind, he's going to lose Benjamin if that's the option that he picks. His other option is to refuse to meet the Egyptian ruler's demands, and all of them just starve to death. Not a lot of options in his mind. What would happen then if they all starved to death? I mean, what about the covenant that God had made with Abraham to bless the world through his promised offspring, the Messiah? Jacob apparently doesn't even consider things like that in the moment. Jacob would have been right. He's almost right here. But he would have been completely right to have said, some things are really against me here. Some things are really pressing on me. Some things are making my life a little bit difficult here. But if he trusted in God's covenant promises, he wouldn't have had to feel like he was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Because like us, Jacob's faith wavers at times. It's not that he doesn't have enemies that are waging war against his soul. He does. He has spiritual enemies. Rather, it's that If God is for us and with us, then those enemies ultimately pose no threat to us. They're like yipping dogs on the strong and unbreakable leash of God's sovereign rule over the universe. Now, if we could have been there with Jacob and pressed him a little bit on this statement, all these things are against me, he may have backtracked a little bit. I'm sure that he at least possibly would have clarified his statement saying, well, I I know that God is for me, technically, but I don't see how God could possibly bring anything good out of this situation. What I really mean is that no human beings love me, no human beings understand me, and as a result, right now, I just feel so alone because I'm scared. And that's how you feel when you're scared very often. You feel like you're completely alone. Maybe you've been there. In one way or another, I would think that we've all been there in one way or another. You face situations in which it seemed like there was no possible good solution, no possible good way out. You've been in circumstances in which maybe you knew what was right, but you felt like you were the only one who, who drew the, the, the line in the, in the sand, so to speak, who, who held the moral boundary. I feel like that all the time. 
I mean, the American church, whether you realize it or not, the American church is being swept away by this, this social gospel that's kind of a combination of socialism and, mar- and cultural Marxism. And as we watch it, sometimes Christina and I will comment to each other saying, you know, why do we have to be the weird ones? Why do we have to be the ones who say, no, we're just going to preach the gospel and let that be enough? Why do we have to be the ones who stand behind the lines of sound doctrine? Because it invites the scorn of so many who have already crossed that line. Has there ever been a time in your life in which it felt like maybe all things weren't against you, but that there was nobody who could possibly sympathize with your burden, and so you kind of felt alone? And that's how I feel. As, as all these, these, these prominent Christian leaders bow the knee to the idol of critical race theory and socialism and cultural Marxism. It makes me feel alone. But at the same time, that causes me to go to God's Word. And I'm reminded of Paul's recollection of Elijah. You know, there was a time when Elijah was feeling exactly how Jacob was feeling. Scared. Alone. And if you take a stand for the gospel, you know you will feel that too, right? If you take a stand for Christ in our culture, there will be times when you feel like this too. So Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, verse 3, of how Elijah cries out to God in his despair, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've torn, all, torn down all your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. Why? Because he's a prophet too, right? In other words, he's saying, God, all these things are against me. Everything, God, is, is against me. I'm afraid. I'm alone. What am I supposed to do? Paul continues in verse 4, writing this. But what is the divine response to him? What does God say to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. If you feel alone in your conviction to stand for Christ in this culture, you'll know how Jacob feels. You'll know how Elijah felt. And you'll know how Paul felt. Paul felt the same way. Do you feel alone in your conviction to hold the lines of sound doctrine? Do you feel alone in your refusal to conform to the ways of the world? In one way, it's very good that you would feel this. Because we do live in a spiritually hostile world. The world is against us. And and the Christian life is is a war against the things which are against your soul. The world, the devil, and the flesh. These things would destroy you if they could. But if you are in Christ, then God is for you. And if God is for you, whatever you face, whatever difficulties, whatever challenges, whatever things seem like dead-end roads, whatever feelings, whatever you face, God is with you and you are not alone. In addition, and in addition to God being with you as He was with Elijah, God has summoned others to the same calling. To stand firm in the truth of God's Word. To refuse to be conformed to the ways of the world or to the demonic spirits of this age and to hold the lines of sound and orthodox doctrine. What a great, wonderful comfort it is to remember and to think and to dwell upon these things. Some of you were here last year when Christina was very sick, and we almost lost her. And some of you know that she was recently diagnosed with a heart condition called SVT. It's in your bulletins. Uh, It's a condition that causes her heart to accelerate rapidly sometimes. When we were in the emergency room, her heart rate was well over uh, 200 while she was just laying there. Uh, It was terrifying. Um, There there was one episode where one of the nurses thought that she was having a heart attack. And she's had a few episodes of that ever since then. Well, anyway, last month I was down at the Shepherds Conference, and I ran into a friend of mine from when I was in the doctorate program at Master's Seminary. And he asked me how, uh, how my studies were going in the program. And I said, well, 
I actually had to drop out of the program, unfortunately, um, you know, due to Christina's health. When her health started failing and she started having problems, I didn't have time to, to do it. And, and I proceeded to explain to him that Christina had been diagnosed with this really rare heart condition called SVT. And, and his mouth just dropped. Because in the past few months, his wife was diagnosed with the same thing. In fact, she was in the emergency room and her heart rate spiked up to 280. And the doctors pulled him aside and started asking him questions because they were sure that she was going to die right there. She didn't. But what a blessing that was. That neither one of us, neither me nor my friend, had to face this condition that our wives had alone. Nobody understood how scared I had been last year when Christina almost died. And I, I, I get it, you know, it, it, it's a unique situation. But suddenly, here I realized that he knew, that my friend knew. Because his wife had this episode that almost took her life as well. The truth is that we aren't alone on this journey. God is with us and in His sovereign goodness and in His sovereign provision. He brings others alongside us who feel the same way, who are in the same boat. If you are in Christ, you are never, ever, ever alone. Not only do you have God with you, but you have a worldwide family, the church, to love you, to pray with you, to counsel you, to comfort you, to minister to you. We come to church, yes, first and foremost, to worship the Lord. The church's primary purpose in gathering together on on Sundays or whenever we gather is to glorify God. But the second purpose supports the first purpose. The first purpose is to glorify. The second purpose is that we would be edified. That we would be strengthened. That we would grow in our understanding of true and solid doctrine together. Together. Because every single one of us, there are no exceptions here, every single one of us needs strength for the journey. And when we're isolated, when we pull away from the church, when we're isolated, we're more inclined to actually start believing that everything that could be against us is. And when the people of God gather, we need to know, and we should be reminded of the fact that we're surrounded by people who are for us. We're united to to God's family by grace. Not on the basis of social standing, not on the basis of occupation or some kind of demographic statistic. We're united to this worldwide family, the church, based solely and entirely upon the work of Christ. If you have repented of every effort of the flesh to be reconciled to God by believing in Christ Jesus. God is more for you than you are for yourself. But on the flip side of that, if you have not believed in Christ, if you have not repented and believed in Christ, you must be warned that God is not for you. In fact, the worst case scenario is a reality for you. He is against you. Because you have rejected His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Scriptures tell us that those who do not have the Son also do not have the Father. And if you don't have the Father, listen, you have never used the name of God properly. But if God has opened your eyes to this reality, to the reality of your guilt, to the reality of His holiness, Let me remind you that the Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord in faith will be saved. Call out to Christ. He alone can save you. God sent sent Him to redeem and to reconcile sinners who repent and place saving faith in the Son. If God has opened your eyes to see your need to be reconciled to Him, you must understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. If God has opened your eyes to see your need to be saved, 
to, to turn from your sin. That is God's grace working in you. And it is amazing grace. And it's amazing because nobody would turn from their sin without it. But if that's you, if God is waking you up to the reality of your sin and your need for a Savior, then I would urge you today to repent and believe in Christ and be reconciled unto God. In Christ, we find grace not only before God. We're justified, yes, but we find grace and strength for every hardship. In Christ, we find strength and grace for every good work. If you're in Christ, God is as much for you as He is for Christ. He's more for you than you are for yourself. What a great God! Hallelujah! What What a Savior we have! The world may oppose you. The devil may make every effort to drag your soul down to hell. And your flesh may incline you to wander fast and far from the Lord. But if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You first and foremost for Your grace that You would not only reconcile us to You, but that You would give us grace for the journey, for every aspect of life. We thank You that You would be causing all things to somehow be working for the purpose of growing us in the likeness of Christ. Forgive us for our stubbornness in that process, Lord. Forgive us for our stubbornness as we realize the closer we get, we realize how far away we really are from Christ. And so we thank You for Your grace that drew us to Him. And we thank You for the grace that has washed our sins away. We thank You for the grace that has provided for the remission of our sins. And we thank You for the grace that strengthens us for life. Father, help us to remember. Help us to remember because our memories are so frail. Our faith can be so weak at times. And so we ask, Lord, that You would instill in us a greater faith, a greater confidence through the working of Your Spirit in us. That we would come to see Your goodness and Your sovereignty. Unto us, Your grace in every aspect of life. That Christ would be glorified. And that we would live in obedience to Your will. In the name of Christ. Amen.